Welcome back to episode three of Is It Cool That I Said All That, a Gaylor podcast. Yes, you heard that correctly. This podcast is for Gaylers, aka people who believe that Taylor Swift is possibly queer because of the queer flagging in her music. Today we're going to be talking about a very infamous storyline of Taylor's, and this goes back to 2020, the folklore and evermore era. We're going to be talking about William Bowery, who is Taylor's co-writer and co-producer on both albums, and who is allegedly Joe Alwyn's pseudonym. If you don't know who Joe Alwyn is, that was Taylor's public partner for how long were they together? Probably like five or six years? I'm going to do a quick rundown summary of what exactly went down with William Bowery, who that is, what the writing credits mean, what I discovered when I was going through copyright catalogs a couple years ago. There has been a really interesting theory that William Bowery is possibly a pseudonym for Paul McCartney or other artists who have worked with Taylor and don't really want to be named. So we'll look at those theories and connections having to do with Paul McCartney and other possibilities for who William Bowery could be. And before we get started, we are going to be talking a little bit about where the name originated, William Bowery. Um, it's supposedly inspired by the Bowery Hotel. It was a hotel that Joe and Taylor were supposedly spotted at around the time they started dating. There's no photographic evidence of this. There is photographic evidence of Taylor leaving the Bowery Hotel with her entire like girl squad, including Carly Kloss, Lily Donaldson, Zoe Kravitz, Dakota Johnson. Who am I missing here? <laughs> there were a lot of people that Taylor went to the Bowery Hotel with. So we'll talk a little bit about other possibilities outside of Joe Alwyn and why we consider other possibilities as Gaylers, because there are a lot of holes in the William Bowery story. And before we get started, I do want to shout out my Patreon. I just uploaded part one of the Tilly timeline, which is a ship of Taylor Swift and Lily Donaldson. It's one of those that people don't really talk about as much, which is why I thought it would be fun to go through the timeline and talk about why I feel like it could be a possibility for Lily to be one of Taylor's muses. If you've ever been curious about Tilly as a ship, feel free to go check out that Patreon episode. I really would appreciate your support over there. And thank you to everyone who's been supporting me on Patreon. Part two of the Tilly episode will be out next week, so definitely get caught up if you aren't. And I just want to clarify for my own sake that everything that I say in this episode is a little bit made up, a little bit fabricated. Um, I don't want to get sued. This is all my opinion. Everything said from here on out in this episode is my opinion. <laughs> okay, let's start from the beginning so that we can really have our base knowledge of where William Bowery came from and how he ties into Folklore and Evermore. So when Folklore came out, she had quite a few songs that had writing credits from William Bowery. It was listed in the album booklet for Folklore and Everything. 
And of course, it was written William Bowery. There was no Joe Alwyn written or printed in any of the album booklets, or Joe Alwyn wasn't listed on the producing or writing credits anywhere else. It was just William Bowery. I think there was a lot of um, fan speculation for months and months, if I remember correctly, that William Bowery was Joe um, prior to her confirming that in Long Pond Studio sessions later in the year. And in between the release of Folklore and Evermore is when she revealed who William Bowery was. And <laughs> I I might try to insert a clip of Long Pond here. Actually, I don't think I'll be able to because of copyright. I'm afraid of her. But please, please, if you haven't already, go watch Long Pond Studio Sessions and pay very close attention to how she talks about William Bowery. It is hilarious the way that it seems like her and Jack and Aaron have like a bit going on. Aaron seems a little bit confused by the bit, but Jack is definitely in on it. It's like when you're with like a group of people and they start joking about something like an inside joke between all of them that like you're not quite in on and you know that there's like a deeper meaning but you can't quite put your finger on it that's exactly what it feels like to listen to taylor talk about william bowery in front of jack antonoff <laughs> um so yeah long pond studio sessions is where she said you know william bowery is joe as we all know and she says that she walked into the room one day and that joe was playing the fully formed chorus for betty which is an insane thing <laughs> to say considering Joe Alwyn has several interviews throughout the years where he says that he doesn't really have any musical talent and he makes a lot of jokes of like oh if I were to pursue a singing or music career y'all would be in danger <laughs> like it's not a good idea he makes jokes about how bad his singing is um, but in Long Pond you hear Taylor like talking up Joe's musical abilities saying that he's always playing music and that he's always messing around with instruments coming up with little melodies and she hears it throughout the house like this entire facade that um, Joe Alwyn is this musical genius just straight up composing Taylor Swift songs for her which is so funny it's funny to watch it's I felt so uncomfortable watching Long Pond Studio Sessions as someone who was barely dipping my tiny little pinky toe into Gaylor. And I was obsessed with folklore for months before Long Pond came out. So I was so excited for it. I watched it the night that it came out at midnight. I felt so confused. Like, I think that's that Long Pond is what pushed me into the deep end of Gaylor because the way she talked about her supposed boyfriend and the way that he helped her write these songs, quote unquote, made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> and not because of Taylor Swift having a boyfriend who helps her write music. It made me uncomfortable because I could tell she was lying and I could tell that she didn't have romantic feelings for this man that she was talking about. So highly recommend watching that so you can really catch my drift of what I'm saying when this is like an inside joke between them. And another thing to note about Long Pond is that she kind of started out the storyline of um, Joe being William Bowery, and this storyline changes over time. So even though she confirms it in November 2020, after Evermore comes out the following month, she changes up her story a lot, and then... Um, continues to until, of course, Folklore wins a Grammy the following year. So originally we had William Bowery credits on Betty and Exile on the album Folklore, and then when Evermore came out, he had writing credits on Coney Island, on Evermore, on Champagne Problems, and nowhere did it list that William Bowery helped produce these things, if I remember correctly, and sometime between December 2020 and the Grammys the following year when Folklore won, William Bowery 
actually got added on writing and producing credits, and just enough of the credits were added so that he could win his own Grammy. Because the Grammy guidelines for album of the year is that like if you helped produce or write on over a third of the album, or at least a third of the album, then you get your own award for your work on it. And prior to 2021, Joe Alwyn slash William Bowery did not have a third of writing credits on Folklore. And then all of a sudden he was added as a producer to different songs and just enough so that he could win his own Grammy. This was extremely fucked up, in my opinion. In my humble, humble opinion, someone who doesn't know uh, much about being a musician, let alone being an international pop star, I feel, in my opinion, like this was fucked up. And in my opinion, I feel like it was some sort of weird legal loophole. A lot of people are confused when I like explain the William Bauer and they're like, but why would she do that, right? Like, why would she get Joe a Grammy? Why would she want this man to be awarded for work that she's done? And to that I say, there must be something that we as the general public don't know about this transaction. In my opinion, I think that Joe Alwyn's contract with Taylor as a PR partner could have included some sort of clause where he gets an award of some sort throughout their um, time bearding in this relationship. Because the reason people enter PR relationships in the first place is to climb, right, in the industry and eventually hopefully win awards for climbing. So when I think about someone like Joe Alwyn being plucked from obscurity and assigned as Taylor Swift's PR boyfriend because no one's really going to look into him because he's a nobody. I could see that contract, in my opinion, including that he wins some sort of like Academy Award during his time being her beard and that Taylor and her team and all the connections that she has would make that happen for him somehow. And then you're probably like, okay, but he could have won something having to do with his acting, right? Like Joe Alwyn is an actor. Why would he want a Grammy? When the pandemic hit, production halted on so many film sets and TV sets, and I'm sure there were at least a few roles that fell through for Joe Alwyn that could have been an opportunity for him to get his foot in like a bigger door in Hollywood and to win some sort of award through it. Um, We only saw him do a few more roles after the pandemic. And by after the pandemic, I mean after (laughs) the world decided the pandemic was over. We saw him do conversations with friends, if I remember correctly, in like one other movie after Folklore Nevermore, after he won his Grammy. Neither of those were... uh, um, award worthy. If you read the reviews of his acting, he he doesn't get very great reception. And I'm not saying that to be mean. It's just kind of what you see if you look up his name in some reviews of his work. In my opinion. <laughs> And when the pandemic happened and uh, Taylor and Joe were in quarantine, whether it be together or not, I'm sure they were scrambling to figure out a way to fulfill this like obligation, possibly contractual in my opinion, that Joe would win an award throughout his time being Taylor's beard. That would be kind of the exchange. You beard for me and you lose your entire identity and become this like projection as Taylor Swift's boyfriend. And in exchange, we get you an Academy Award of some sort uh, that will keep your name circulated in Hollywood and get you in higher paying bigger roles in the future because now you have an award. So when a lot of his acting jobs fell through inevitably during the pandemic, maybe the solution was, well, fuck it. Let's just give him some stupid producing credits 
because the way that the industry works nowadays with producing and songwriting credits is pretty, you know, flimsy and unethical. So they were able to mold that in a way that would benefit uh, Joe and in turn fulfill the contract that Taylor's team possibly put him in, in my opinion. <laughs> and maybe uh, getting him a Grammy was just the the loophole to the loophole, you know? And circling back to my feelings of like disgust a little bit with this, I think my feelings of disgust more so come from the fact that um, the industry functions in this way and that I have learned enough about the industry that this is the only logical conclusion I can come to as to why Taylor Swift would give this man any credit for her work. And I think what's what's really fucked up too is the fact that Taylor was able to add Joe to so many of the credits for producing after the fact that she won the award. I don't understand how that's allowed, <laughs> like how the Grammys allowed that. I don't understand like why that exception was made. The only other time that they've made that exception to add credits uh, to an award that's already been given was for Beyonce uh, giving Blue Ivy credits. So that makes sense. Beyonce can do whatever the fuck she wants. And if it means getting Blue Ivy a Grammy for Taylor, just to like tack on her little boyfriend's pseudonym's name um, to a few more songs on an album that, you know, her and her friends worked so hard on is mm, a little less valid, in my opinion. All of this to say, I know that Taylor is a closeted artist and I'm sure she doesn't want to have to be doing all of these stupid loopholes and things just to win awards and be the big international pop star that she is but still upsetting as a fan after she worked so hard the past several years to own her work and emphasizes like artists owning her work it just feels like she's being held hostage in my opinion <laughs> to give joe these credits an interesting little aside that um i recently either saw a tiktok about or read about somewhere and i cannot find anywhere right now um, but I'll try to explain it the best that I can with my words. Apparently, when Beyonce got Blue Ivy her Grammy, it somehow gave her the ability to make Blue Ivy a some sort of like savings retirement Roth IRA type beat account. But in order to have a Roth IRA, I think is what it was called, um, you have to be an employer or you have to be like employed by the person. And I think there was like some sort of loophole where Blue Ivy winning the Grammy meant that she was now an employee of Beyonce's. And because of that Grammy, Beyonce was able to secure some financial security for Blue for the future. I know that I'm explaining this in a way that like doesn't use proper terms. I bring it up because it brings an interesting part of this theory that's like very tangible and has to do with like law and finances, where maybe there was a reason to give Joe Alwyn a Grammy so that um, he could get the money that Taylor's team possibly paid him to be a beard? I don't know. This is all my opinion. Like I've been saying, all my opinion, don't worry. But it really just makes you think about the way that money gets moved and laundered in Hollywood and how these award shows and the Academy tie into that. Another telltale sign that this producing and writing credit is just straight up a lie is Jack Antonoff did an interview uh, in the summer of 2021 that I genuinely cannot find for the life of me. It was an interview about producing with someone asking him specifically about what it's like being a producer. And they asked uh, Jack's thoughts on the legalities of being 
listed as a producer and songwriter on music and jack went on this big like rant about how nowadays in the industry someone can just be in the room while a song is being produced and they can fight for producing credits and get them because of how flimsy the law is for it if anyone uh can remember what interview that was or link me to if anyone can remember what interview that was please please send it to me i can't find it anywhere but i remember it so vividly (laughs) and it also just makes sense why he would be so kind of bitter and doing this little bit with Taylor during Long Pond Studio sessions about the entire thing. I find William Bowery to be a really interesting piece of Taylor lore because this is not the first time she's used a pseudonym in order to write gay music specifically. I'm thinking about her song with Calvin Harris that she wrote called This Is What You Came For, which was eventually sang by Rihanna, and how queer that song is. Lightning strikes every time she moves, everybody's watching her, but she's looking at you. And she wrote that song using a pseudonym of a Swedish artist, uh, Niels Schneinberg or something, which if you look up the name that she used that pseudonym for. The birthday of that person that she named the pseudonym after is on the day of Kissgate. If you don't know Kissgate, it was when Taylor and Carly Kloss were caught on camera allegedly kissing at the 1975 concert back in 2015 or 14. I believe it was like December 4th, 2014. Don't ask me why I know that. And I don't know if that date being the birthday of the pseudonym person is a coincidence, but probably not knowing Taylor. Regardless, I think it's really, really interesting to think about Taylor using pseudonyms um, of men's name in order to write music about women. This seems arbitrary for someone like Taylor Swift to have to do in our Lord year of 2020, back for Folklore Nevermore, and again, later in Midnight's, we'll get to Sweet Nothing, which also has William Bowery credits. It seems crazy to have to do that in this day and age, right? Because it's what queer poets were doing back in the fucking 70s. 1700s. But here we are. Taylor describes um, hearing Joe sing Exile, um, specifically the man's verses in Exile, saying she loved it from that um, deeper voice coming from a man's voice. And it felt a little cheeky when she said it. Because it's three songs that William Bowery is credited on for writing and producing that have a man featured singing. So, you know, is William Bowery a way for Taylor to tap into her own gender and explore this like more masculine side while maintaining her image? Someone who Taylor was rumored to have dated, Diana Agron, used to run a Tumblr blog where she used a pseudonym called Charlie. And it was kind of her like man persona back in the day, which is why a lot of people think that Diana Agron could possibly be William Bowery, especially because she has a lower singing voice. So that's one theory. There's also theories that Carly Kloss could be William Bowery because she was there the night of the Bowery Hotel things happening. And of course, we know Diana Agron also loves the Bowery Hotel. She's photographed leaving that place like dozens of times. But back to Carly, people think that it's Carly Kloss because she has a lot of videos of her learning how to play piano and knowing a few chords. There's even a video where you can kind of hear Taylor laughing in the background while Carly's trying to play piano. Another fun little tidbit I found out literally just a few weeks ago that made me freak out is that Carly Kloss and Josh Kushner's dog, its name is Joe. (laughs) Its name is Joe. And during Long Pond, when Taylor says, I called Jack up and I told him that me and Joe wrote a song, Jack's response is, I thought you were kidding. I thought it was one of those jokes when like couples write a song about their dog or whatever. Like I thought that you were making a joke. And that cracks me up and definitely has me thinking about Carly being William Bowery because why 
And why would Jack Antonoff like bring up a dog and like a couple writing a song about a dog if like it just didn't seem relevant there. It was so random of him to say. So learning that a few weeks ago has definitely shifted my perspective. If you know me, you know that I love Diana Agron separately as a person. So I would love if she were William Bowery. I watched her perform at the Carlisle Hotel when she did her little residency and she is just such a fun performer. I would love to hear original music from Diana Agron one day. That's why I kind of canon her as William Bowery just for my own little heart. But I could definitely see it being Carly Kloss too. Don't get me wrong. That evidence is just as heavy. The evidence of it being Joawin, not so much. And while we are here talking about all the different possible theories of who William Bowery is, at least who we have, as Gaylers have canoned to be William Bowery, I wanted to share the results of a poll that I posted for episode two. I asked all of you, who do you think William Bowery is? 53% of you said that it's Taylor using a pseudonym for herself. 22% of you said Paul McCartney which we will get into. 15% of you said Diana Agron. Shout out to y'all. 5% said Carly Kloss. And 3% said Joe Alwyn. So hilarious that, of course, my audience of Gaylor listeners would vote Joe Alwyn to be the lowest percentage of who William Bowery is when that is literally who it's supposed to be. So now that we've gone over some of the theorizing, some of the ideas that I've had about this entire situation over the past few years, let's talk about the facts. Let's talk about the U.S. copyright catalog. Because I am insane, back in 2021 when Joe won his Grammy, I was so infuriated that I actually went onto the public copyright catalog and I searched up the songs that William Bowery is credited on. And while searching in this copyright catalog, I discovered that there are two different people who are listed as this William Bowery pseudonym. I'm going to try to explain this the best that I can. For example, when you find the song Betty's little page, you actually see that the copyright claimant is TASRM Publishing, which is assumed to be like Taylor's publishing thing because it's TAS, Taylor, Allison Swift. And the address is for Universal, which is her label. That makes sense. And then there's another copyright claimant listed, William Bowery Music Publishing, which is also under Universal with the same address. But then when you get down to the authorship on the actual application, it's Taylor Allison Swift, Citizenship United States, She's listed to have written the music and lyrics for the song, of course. And then right under that, we have Willem Bowery, W-I-L-L-A-M, separate from William Bowery. Now, Willem Bowery has a citizenship in the United States and is listed for music and lyric authorship here. This is really interesting because this separates two people being William Bowery. This means that there is someone who wrote under the authorship Willem Bowery, and separately, there's someone who wrote under the authorship William Bowery. Now, I don't have enough knowledge on, like, copyright (laughs) stuff to be able to say what all of this actually means, but this discovery led Gaylers to realize that William slash Willem Bowery couldn't possibly be Joe Alwyn because the citizenship is for the United States. 
So definitely something to keep in mind as we continue this journey. The fact that he, he couldn't legally be Joe Alwyn, which is very confusing considering he won a Grammy. Interestingly enough, the songs with Willem Bowery, they are connected to William Bowery, like publishing or whatever with the same address as Universal. But then the ones that are listed, William Bowery, say that the citizenship is not known that there's not an address for like the publishing or whatever it's completely separate from willem this is what has led a lot of people to believe that william bowery the pseudonym could be used by several different people possibly other artists who work with taylor but don't necessarily want the publicity of working with taylor swift on a song because that's not always a good thing to have that exposure and we'll see later on that paul mccartney and taylor swift both have an appreciation for using pseudonyms for that reason so let's talk a little bit about the song sweet nothing which came out in october 2022 with the album Mid nights this is the most recent song that william bowery has credit on one of my personal favorite theories about the william bowery credit specifically on sweet nothing is that paul mccartney actually helped co-write it or that he was given writing credits because taylor took inspiration from him and linda mccartney's kind of love story this was a theory that i saw a while back on tiktok and twitter and I eventually circled back to learning about the theory myself through periwinklemusings.tumblr.com. It seems like this person basically made this blog specifically to write this blog post about Sweet Nothing, which is so cool of them. So if you want to check out the full blog post that I'm basing a lot of this off of, I will link it below, of course. Make sure you check my episode descriptions because I leave a lot of links for things that I reference. As much as my theorizing comes from like my own brain, a lot of it is teamwork with other Gaylor brains that have shared information. So I want to make sure to give credit to everyone that I possibly can and all the sources that I uh, come across for researching these episodes. The theory about the song Sweet Nothing is that it was written about Paul and Linda's summer in Wicklow, Ireland in 1971. Paul put out a poem and lyric book called Blackbird Singing, which features a lot of poetry about Linda McCartney. And one of the things that he said about the book was, quote, I would go for a run, think of some words, get home from the run, write them down, and make a cup of tea for Linda. I'd make a little tray and go up and then I'd say, hey, by the way, do you want to hear some poetry? And she'd always say, yeah. So I wrote that poem. I would come back from a run with lines of poetry to tell, and having listened, she would say, what a mind. There's a lyric in Sweet Nothing where she says, on the way home, I wrote a poem, you say, what a mind, and this happens all the time. Now, those lines completely line up with how Paul is describing this summer with Linda specifically, how he would go for a run, write a poem on the way home, read it to her, and her response was exactly, what a mind which is such a beautiful sentiment. Like that is one of my favorite lyrics probably on Midnight's or ever of Taylor's. It is just so sweet. When people acknowledge your words like that and your poetry, and when you are in a relationship where you can feel comfortable and safe and vulnerable enough to share it with someone, especially on a daily basis or all of the time, it is just one of the most pure forms of love, in my opinion. <laughs> now I'm just saying in my opinion after everything because I'm like horrified of being sued. I know that I would never be sued. Also, every time I say that, I am fully kidding because I feel like the only way that I would get sued is if I was like influencing 
the general public's opinion, which I don't feel like I am doing on my little Gaylor podcast. So if any um, representatives from Taylor or Joawin or anyone's camp are listening, just know I know my rights. We talked about how Paul McCartney wrote a poem and lyric book called Blackbird Singing. And in that book, there is a poem called Her Spirit, which is about Linda. And it is not only a beautiful poem, but kind of references sweet nothing. The poem reads, Her spirit moves wind chimes. When air is still and fills the room with fragrance of lily, her eyes blue-green, still seen, perfectly happy with nothing. Her spirit sets the water pipes, a humming fat electronic force, be with you sound. Her spirit talks to me through animals, beautiful creature, lay with me. Bird that calls my name insists that she is here, and nothing left to fear. Bright white squirrel, foot of tree, fixes me with innocent gaze. Her spirit talks to me. The line specifically that sounds like it's from Sweet Nothing is perfectly happy with nothing and nothing left to fear. And also just kind of that sweet nothing vibe of hearing wind chimes and like air being still in a home and feeling seen just by someone's presence. It's very sweet nothing coded. All that you ever wanted from me was nothing and this peace of living in a home and having the air be still and having it be so quiet I can hear you humming from the kitchen. I think this is a beautiful poem that um, pairs perfectly with Sweet Nothing. As we know, there is a name drop of Wicklow, Ireland in this song where she says, I spy with my little tired eye a pebble that we picked up last July. Down deep in my pocket, we almost forgot it. Does it ever miss Wicklow sometimes? And it is believed that Paul and Linda McCartney spent their summer of 1971 in Wicklow, Ireland shortly after the Beatles' breakup in 1969. There was apparently a lot of beef between John and Paul McCartney, as we know from the Beatles, and they exchanged letters in the summer of 1971 where they were really, really heated and fighting with each other via these letters. There isn't a specific quote necessarily in these letters that says industry disruptors, word for word. However, there is a lot of talk about like industry backstabbing happening between John and Paul, specifically John accusing Paul of those things. So for this song to be written from the perspective of Paul McCartney in some way and saying, you know, these industry disruptors and soul deconstructors like Paul was dealing with at the time throughout this uh, Beatles breakup, all out glad handing each other and voices saying that I should do more um, after the Beatles breakup, I should be making art still, I should be trying to get the band back together, whatever it may be was happening in Paul McCartney's head at this time. It would really track that Linda would be kind of his safety in that sense of, you don't want anything from me, you know? After running away to Wicklow, Ireland and experiencing this really beautiful nature, nature-inspired quiet life with their children is comforting. And it makes sense why at that time he would feel like he's too soft for all of it. And on top of all of this, it would make sense that Taylor would be someone who would relate to all of those feelings as she's dealing with her own industry drama all the time, <laughs> but especially having to do with her masters and how the pandemic kind of felt like her own 
her own Wicklow summer. And in case you didn't know, Linda McCartney actually was a big fan of cooking. She published a few cookbooks and she founded a food company that is still running today, which is, again, paralleled to the song, You're in the Kitchen Hummin', All That You Ever Wanted From Me Was Nothing. Now that we've gone through Paul and Linda's love story and how it really ties into Sweet Nothing, I want to talk a little bit about tangible ties that Taylor has to the McCartney family. One of the connections that Taylor has to the McCartney family is with Stella McCartney. Back in 2019, Taylor collabed with Stella McCartney for Lover Merchandise, and there's actually a video on YouTube where Taylor and Stella walk through a gallery of all of the merch, and Taylor talks a little bit about it, and Stella talks about the inspiration behind it. It's actually really interesting if you want to learn more about that and see Taylor and Stella interact. And then at the end of 2020, Stella actually dressed and styled Taylor for the Evermore cover, which is super fascinating because my partner, Casey, who loves the Beatles, actually brought to my attention that the Evermore cover reminds him of the theory that Paul McCartney is dead, which originated, I believe, because of one of the Beatles albums on the back of it. All of the members were facing forward and Paul was facing backwards. Uh, this was on the back cover of one of the albums and I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Don't hate me, Beatles fans. <laughs> um, but basically, because Paul's back was turned on this back cover and he was the only one, uh, there was this theory that Paul died and it kind of ended up turning into a theory having to do with like the music itself, which I find so interesting if we think about Evermore being like the old Taylor's dead type beat. I think it makes a lot of sense for Evermore to be her her funeral, her death. It also reminds me of the funeral scene in Antihero and when everyone starts fighting. <laughs> And I do think that Taylor having Stella be the one to dress her for this cover might have been a nod to being inspired by the Paul is dead theory. That could have been very much on purpose to flag the fact that it is inspired by that and it's not just a coincidence. Also in 2020, Taylor and Paul interviewed each other for the Musicians on Musicians um, edition of Rolling Stone. I actually have this physical copy because I love this interview so much. And in this interview, Paul also says that Stella and Taylor are close friends in private. So that's something good to know. Like they didn't just collab for the lover merch and, and she didn't just ask Stella to style her for the Evermore cover. They're actually close. I don't know much about Stella McCartney as an individual, but very interesting to note. Do we know Stella McCartney's queer? I don't know. Should we start a ship? <laughs> I have been wanting to talk about this Rolling Stone article for a couple of years now in some form of Gaylor content, and I went ahead and pulled some quotes that are significant to William Bowery specifically. Paul McCartney actually brings up the fact that he writes under pseudonyms, and Taylor takes the chance to talk about pseudonyms too. Paul says, quote, when you're working with someone else, you have to worry about their variances, whereas your own variance, you kind of know it. It's just something that I've grown to like. Once you can do it, it becomes a little bit addictive. I actually made some records under the name Fireman. And this was him asking a question about like making music alone. And Taylor responds, love a pseudonym. She says, yeah, I think when a pseudonym comes in is when you still have a love for making the work and you don't want the work to become overshadowed by this thing that's been built around you based on what people know about you. And that's when it's really fun to create fake names and write under them. And Paul asks her, do you ever do that? And Taylor says, oh yeah. Paul says, oh yeah, question mark. Oh, well, we didn't know that. Is that a widely known fact? And she says, 
I think it is now, but it wasn't. I wrote under the name Niles Schoberg because those are two of the most popular names of Swedish males. I wrote this song called This Is What You Came For that Rihanna ended up singing, and nobody knew for a while. I remembered always hearing that when Prince wrote Manic Monday, they didn't reveal it for a couple of months. And Paul responds, Yeah, it also proves you can do something without the fame tag. I did something for Peter and Gordon. My girlfriend's brother and his mate were in a band called Peter and Gordon. And I used to write under the name Bernard Webb for them. So here we have both Paul McCartney and Taylor admitting that they use pseudonyms back in 2020. Yeah, Taylor is literally admitting that she loves to use pseudonyms, and she explains why even. I want to go back and kind of dissect her quote about why. She says that a pseudonym comes in when you still have a love for making the work, and you don't want the work to become overshadowed by this thing that's been built around you, aka possibly this glass closet public persona narrative that has been built around her, just her public persona that is um, based on what people have been told by the media. So she's saying, I like to write under pseudonyms so that people don't associate the work and the art with Taylor Swift trademark, the girl who had a hundred different boyfriends and can't keep them and can't hold down a man and was such a slut back in the day. Whatever else people used to say about Taylor. I also love Paul's like shock at it. He's like, I didn't know that. Like we didn't we didn't know that. Is this a fact? Are you just dropping this here? <laughs> And she's like, oh, yeah, it's a fact. I, I wrote this gay-ass song and then Rihanna sang it, you know, just like Prince, the other gay artist, used to write music under his own name. You know, yeah, it's a known fact. This is what makes me think that William slash Willem Bowery back in Folklore and Evermore could have just been a pseudonym for Taylor's quote-unquote male perspective. And like I said, just a way for her to explore writing from a queer perspective while letting the public believe that it's like from a man's perspective. And it gives her kind of this cover so that she can continue making art without people judging it. I see it as like a protective mechanism almost, the pseudonym, which I can't blame her for because obviously if Taylor didn't have William Bowery in the Joe Alwyn narrative, I think that Hitler's and Swifties and the general public would be probably slightly more confused about what all of this music is about and why it's so gay. But then again, people don't really like to question it or assume that she's queer, so maybe they wouldn't. But I think having William Bowery as this kind of like cover mask for these really queer songs is a protective mechanism for herself. Another one of my favorite parts of this interview is when Paul McCartney brings up the song Peace. And he said he really loved that one. And Taylor responds, quote, Peace is actually more rooted in my personal life. I know you've done a really excellent job of this in your personal life, carving out a human life within a public life, and how scary that can be when you do fall in love and you meet someone, especially if you've met someone who has a very grounded, normal way of living. I oftentimes, in my anxieties, can control how I'm as I oftentimes in my anxieties can control how I am as a person and how normal I act and rationalize things. But I cannot control if there are 20 photographers outside in the bushes and what they do, and if they follow our car and if they interrupt our lives. I can't control if there's going to be a fake weird headline written about us in the news tomorrow. Very similar to what she says in Long Pond Studio Sessions. Paul's response is so how does that go? Does your partner sympathize with that and understand? And Swift responds, oh, absolutely. And Paul says, they have to, don't they? I want to pause here and note the fact that Paul McCartney said, does your partner sympathize with that? They have to, don't they? So using gender neutral pronouns, because if Paul McCartney does know that Taylor is bearding, he's obviously trying to give her the freedom to like decide how she wants to talk about this partner. And Taylor responds, I think that in knowing him 
and in being the relationship I'm in now, I've definitely made decisions that have made my life feel more like a real life and less like just a storyline to be commented on in the tabloids. Whether that's deciding where to live, who to hang out with, when to not take a picture, the idea of privacy feels so strange to try to explain, but it's really just about finding bits of normalcy. That's what the song Peace is about. Like, would it be enough if I could never fully achieve the normalcy that we both crave? Stella always tells me that she has had a normal childhood, as she could ever hope for, at least under the circumstances. Paul says, Yeah, it was important for us to try and keep their feet on the ground amongst the craziness. And Taylor says, She went to a regular school. Paul says, Yeah, she did. And she says, You would go trick-or-treating with them, just wearing masks. And he said, Yeah, all of them did. It was important, but it worked pretty well because when they kind of reached adulthood, they would meet other kids who might have gone to private schools who were a little less grounded, and they could be the budding mothers to kids. And Taylor asks Paul, Did that give you a lot of anxiety when you had kids? When you felt like all this pressure that had been put on me is spilling onto them and that they didn't sign up for it? Was that hard for you? And they go on to talk a little bit about how all of Taylor's friends are having kids and. I think Taylor is point-blank naming what her relationship um, situation looks like with Joe here. She says, I think in knowing him and being in the relationship I am in now, so she's like, in knowing Joe and separately being in the relationship that I'm in, I've made decisions that have made my life feel more like a real life. So she's basically naming that knowing Joe and having Joe as a public partner in my life has allowed me to carve out a real life that isn't commented on by the tabloids. She's she's literally naming here that Joe and her relationship is not that for her. It's not the private thing that keeps her grounded and that that's a separate relationship, but that her cover of Joe helps her hold on to those bits of normalcy. And I find it interesting that she asks, you know, what was it like for your kids to grow up knowing that you were this giant famous person? Like, how did you raise them? I find it interesting that she's talked to Stella McCartney about her childhood and what it was like to grow up with Paul McCartney being your dad. She talks about how a lot of her friends are having kids, so it's clearly something running through her mind, this idea of living a normal life throughout the pandemic and what it would look like for her to like slow down and settle down. Regardless, I don't know if Taylor actually wants kids or a family or to settle down or any of those things, but it's clearly something she's thinking about during this time because all of her friends are doing it, including... Carly Gloss. <laughs> Peace being a song that stuck out to Paul McCartney makes a lot of sense. And them having this conversation about peace is what also kind of makes me believe that Taylor would go on to write Sweet Nothing inspired by Paul and Linda because she clearly admires the way that they raise their kids in as normal of an environment as they possibly can. And she admires how grounded Paul is. Uh, the rest of the interview is her asking a lot of questions about, you know, what it's like to live a very normal life being who he is because he brags about how he you know has a messy house full of like shitty furniture and things that he hand built because he could and had all the time in the world to and how he doesn't like fancy things and he's not interested in being famous anymore he's actually just interested in living like a whole grounded life and that's something that taylor is craving at this point and seemingly what she's singing about in Sweet Nothing is that kind of quiet life. It's this peace that she felt like she couldn't give this person when she wrote Folklore. And regardless of if she ended up being able to give this person that peace or those sweet nothings, I think she was inspired by Paul kind of giving that to Linda and his kids. 
So now that we've talked about why I believe Sweet Nothing is probably about Paul McCartney and the ties as to why I think he could be the William Bowery featured on the album Midnight's, I want to talk about one more giant connection between Paul and Taylor, which precedes folklore evermore, William Bowery, everything. Back in 2018, Paul McCartney put a song out called Who Cares? And when asked about the song with BBC, his response was, I was actually thinking about Taylor Swift and her relationship to her young fans and how it's sort of a sisterly thing. And I was imagining talking to one of those young fans and saying, have you ever been bullied? Do you get bullied? And then I say, who cares about the idiots? Who cares about all this? Who cares about you? Well, I do. So an interesting quote from him. He's such a wacky dude. I can't really ever understand like what tone of voice he's saying these things in. But the way that I interpret this quote is him saying he's thinking about Swifties and how parasocial they are with Taylor and how it is a sisterly sort of thing to the fans. That parasocial relationship can be a reason that Swifties feel like they can make it through hardship, like being bullied, I guess. I think he's pointing out how this parasocial relationship with Taylor, no matter how parasocial and fabricated it is, it really is like a sisterly thing. And it does actually help people when Taylor speaks up about issues in the world. And when we think about 2018 and where Taylor was at at this point, reputation had come out, but you need to calm down and like the entire lover era had not happened yet. So her like soft launch coming out hadn't happened. She was still very much bound to this idea that she's just the victim girl in the Kanye West narrative. And she tried to come back with a really bad album, at least in the general public's eye. That's what they felt about reputation. So him writing this song is, I think, not only addressed to uh, fangirls of Taylor Swift, but also to Taylor Swift herself. I think he covers it up by saying that it's about her fans. But I think it's also about her in the sense of like, who cares that all these people hate you and that your reputation is tarnished? Like, who cares? I'm Paul McCartney and I care about you and you're doing something that matters. Let's talk about some lyrics from this song that I feel are Taylor coded. The first verse reads, did you ever get hurt by the words people say and the things that they do when they're picking on you? Did you ever get sad by the end of the day when they're making you feel like an old rusty wheel? Now, an old rusty wheel is almost a direct correlation to the song My Tears Ricochet from Folklore, where she says, I had the shiniest wheels, now they're rusting. I think this is her calling back to this song and this idea that like Paul McCartney has so much faith in her. All of her fans have so much faith in her, but she still feels like a rusty old wheel. Sorry, I don't know if I said My Tears Ricochet, but I meant This Is Me Trying. I think This Is Me Trying is. The next verse says, It's been left in the rain. Who cares what the idiots say? Who cares of what the idiots do? Who cares about the pain in your heart? Who cares about you? I do. And I do think that there's something to be said about the rain metaphor in all of Taylor's discography, specifically in like Midnight Rain and in the Me Music video at the very end when she has like umbrellas and she's walking around with Brendan Urie. She tends to use umbrellas and rain as this metaphor for covering things and protecting herself and, you know, covering from a storm. Another verse says, did you ever get lost in the heart of a crowd and the people around keep on pushing you down? Is it driving you mad and you're screaming out loud and you're wondering who's going to recognize you? Of course, Taylor talks about going mad a lot. She loves Alice in Wonderland. Another verse, he calls Taylor a ghost in the dark. 
So clearly Paul and Taylor have had private conversations about what it's like to have to uphold a public image while also living a private life. And it's been happening since 2018 that she's been confiding in him at least. Now the most interesting part about the song is hardly even the lyrics. There's actually an entire music video for this song and it features none other than Miss Emma Stone. I'm going to plug my Patreon again, and I'm really sorry, but I did do a Speak Now Vault Track episode, and I went through a Emma Stone timeline of possible stone lore ship being a thing. I mostly did it because of this, because I, I this is so weird to me, and then the other connections, like when Emma falls in love and Emma going to the Eras tour, made me think that maybe there was something deeper between them at some point. So it is an interesting choice for Emma Stone to kind of be playing the Taylor character in this music video. The video opens showing like a book with like spirals written in it, a pair of scissors, thumbtack, lots of drawings of spirals, which ties into this chaos theory, a feeling that has been happening since the reputation era. She also references the butterfly effect on Midnight's, did some bird flap its wings over in Asia in Bigger Than the Whole Sky. I've seen a few other Gaylor creators talking about chaos theory in Taylor's work. I don't exactly know how it ties into uh, Paul McCartney and all of these things, possible coming out or Gaylor things, but it is something to note that it's featured in this. There's also little drawings of lightning strikes around the title um, image. So maybe referencing the fact that she used a pseudonym as a man for this is what you came for. We see Emma Stone walking in from the rain. Again, noted that it's raining. And she's using a newspaper to cover her head from the rain, which I think could be a really cool metaphor for reputation and the era Taylor's in at this time. She's kind of using the media as a way to cover herself up for once instead of having it be weaponized against her. She's using her beard as her cover from the rain, from the storm. Emma walks in with like soaking wet hair because the newspaper isn't really working as a <laughs> umbrella. She has red nails and she's carrying a little note, which seems like it's like a recommendation or a note for the doctor's office she's supposed to be going to. She walks up to a door that says Dr. Lorenz, behavioral hypnotist and meteorologist, which again, another weather reference, which we also get in the Lavender Haze music video. Her boyfriend, love interest partner in the video, the public boyfriend guy that Laith Ashley plays, he is the meteorologist on the TV screen that she eventually crawls into. So another connection there. Emma walks into this therapy office and there's very similar black and white art behind her as she walks in. In to the art that is featured in the anti-hero music video in the dining room when she's the giant monster on the hill and everyone is afraid of her at dinner. Paul McCartney plays the therapist and he takes out his tea set and Paul starts talking to her as the therapist talking about chaos and disorder and how his office is out of order and how life gets a bit chaotic sometimes. So again this video is obviously some sort of chaos theory reference. And Emma, the entire time so far in this office, is just kind of nervous and a little anxious seeming. There's a TV that's on in this office, but it's on static. Paul McCartney, playing the therapist, asks if Emma Stone is skeptical about this. Emma says, if I bark like a dog every time someone says cat, I won't be very pleased. And he responds, I imagine not. So it's kind of this idea of if I act like someone 
other than what people are expecting, then it's not going to go well. And I also think that this could be a cheeky little reference to The Last Great American Dynasty, where she talks about how Rebecca Harkness died her neighbor's dog, Key Lime Green. And I actually read Blue Blood, the biography for Rebecca Harkness, and it was in fact a cat that was died, Key Lime Green, and it wasn't the neighbor, it was her psychic. So I think that's funny to have that kind of like dog cat reference in this after Taylor had a little bit of a, a lie in the last great American dynasty. And Paul, as this hypnotherapist, is trying to get Emma to focus on this like hypnotizing spiral that's spinning, telling her that if you focus on patterns, you can actually unlock things. Paul starts counting down like a real hypnotherapist, counts down from 10 and asks Emma to focus on the black and white spiral that she's being hypnotized by. She enters this hypnotic state where you see Emma Stone painted in white face paint with a bunch of like rainbow colors on her eyelids and this really short cut, um, stark fuck ass bob. <laughs> if you don't know, everyone on Twitter calls Taylor's um, Bob from 1989 fuck ass bob. I'm not insulting Emma Stone. It's just a, a factual. That is fuck-ass bob cut. <laughs> so the rainbow makeup is very queer-coded, obviously, and it's very lover-era coded, too. It reminds me of Taylor's um, album cover with the heart around her eye and all of her dip-dyed hair in that era. And Emma Stone is inside of this weird box thing on this like 2D set, like is where she's transported to, and there's all these black and white mimes dancing around her and she's stuck in this box doing a big performance these people are like stabbing her through the box as if she's kind of like a magician's assistant type of beat when they put the swords through the box except she's standing uh reminds me of the willow music video when taylor's in the glass closet and every other video where taylor's standing in some sort of closet like structure or box and then we have Emma being spun on one of those like torture spinning devices as well. A knife flies into her mouth and she catches it with her teeth. All the while we have Paul McCartney in like a separate scene with a bunch of spirals behind him. The same black and white hypnotist spirals and he's just singing, who cares about you? I do. And then around the three minute timestamp, Emma runs away from all of these mimes and gets in a getaway car with Paul. And Paul is driving her away from all of these like mimes that have been seemingly torturing her. And then they're driving through a New York City skyline. So very interesting. It's clear that Paul McCartney is in on Taylor Swift's music. He obviously listens and he knows the premise of her music. And it's obvious that Taylor took inspiration from this music video for future work after this too. Around the three minute and 40 second time mark, there is... I kid you not, an elevator with an eye on each door as the doors are opening up and it has the little thing on top showing all the floors and it's on the third floor, just like the Bejeweled music video. And this is another time that Taylor's talked about elevators that I'm just like very intrigued by. Two themes that I want to get into eventually, the storms and the weather and the rain and the umbrellas, as well as 
the elevators of it all. The elevator in Labyrinth that she's afraid will rise too fast. The elevator in the Bejeweled music video. The elevator at the end of Karma on the Aristor performance. The elevator that she was photographed in during her Bowery Hotel Kings of Leon concert phase when she supposedly quote-unquote met Joe, um, but she was actually with the whole squad of like Lily, Carly, Zoe, all of these people that could be potential muses. Elevators are clearly some sort of symbol for Taylor, and I really want to look into that a little more. It even makes me think about the song Hours when she says elevator buttons and morning air, and she's talking about how miserable it is to like go through all of these meetings and do all the business parts of being a musician and how people throw rocks at things that shine and all of these uh, business people disapprove of whoever she's seeing. I don't know if it's calling all the way back to that era back in 2010 when she's writing about elevators or how that ties in, but if you guys have any thoughts on elevators or if they're significant in Paul McCartney or the Beatles discography in some way that I'm not catching on to, uh, please do let me know. Reach out. Another interesting thing to note is at the top of the elevator where it shows what floor we're on, it has, it looks like the initials LP. Don't really know what that means. The elevator opens and it's Emma Stone standing there and all the mimes get into the elevator with her and make her miserable as they've been doing. And then Emma eventually runs out of the elevator as Paul is singing about who's going to recognize you. You're a ghost in the dark. It cuts to Emma being papped by all of these mimes and hating it. And then her standing in a white dress in front of a back in a white dress in front of a black background for the first time in the video. And she has this very abstract little face mask on where it separates both of her eyes. Hello, eye theory. Hello, eye theory. And then there's also an arrow going through her head and she's holding a paper umbrella prop. Like I said, this umbrella and rain metaphor means something. And then lightning goes to strike her and she shoves it away with her umbrella. But then the lightning ends up zapping her and electrocuting her. And then she throws up a bunch of mimes and they all come out of her mouth. It's very interesting. And then we see Emma and Paul dancing together very chaotically. There's some more eye theory coded things happening. And then the spirals that we've been seeing in this whole video turn into umbrellas. Hello, umbrellas. And then seemingly the hypnosis ends and we see Emma Stone sitting in the same office that she entered, but she's sitting on the floor and there is nothing around her. It's like this hypnotist moved out while she was in her hypnosis. He left a note for her that says, don't forget your umbrella. X Paul. And underneath that little note, there's a newspaper that says, never a fan of the old. I think that this Paul McCartney video is extremely underrecognized in the Gaylor community specifically. And there's a lot of symbolism that Taylor ends up taking and using for the Midnight's era and folklore nevermore. I think the symbolism of it all uh, has to do with Taylor being hated so much prior to reputation and afterwards having all of this success and still feeling like she is hated and still having the anxiety that she's hated by everyone and trying to seek solace in some way, shape, or form and actually finding solace in chaos, finding solace in allowing the media to run with whatever they're going to run with so that it can cover up her real life. I don't know. It seems like a very therapeutic reframing to me. Maybe Emma Stone playing Taylor as something to do with 
Emma and Taylor's relationship at some point. It's also important to know that Emma Stone at this time was going to be in a movie with Joe Alwyn or had already been in a movie with Joe Alwyn, one of the two. So he, she was closely tied to Taylor and Joe at this time as well. And Paul says in the behind the scenes video that him and Emma are friends and Emma and Taylor are friends. So it only made sense to ask Emma to do this, right? I'm going to leave a little Spotify uh, question asking you guys your thoughts on all of this. Like I said, please check out my Patreon if you want more content. Silly episode part two will be out next week. Thank you so, so much for listening. And as always, to all of the legal reps out there who might be listening to this podcast, I really, really hope it's cool that I said all that. Please don't sue me. Mwah.